Welcome to How I Got Hired. This is the podcast to inspire ambitious professionals just like yourself to find that role you love or completely reinvent your career. I'm your host Sonal Behel, founder of Supercharge and career strategist and every week I hold a conversation with an ordinary person from around the world who's had extraordinary success in finding their dream job, their dream career so you can learn from them and how they got hired. And today I'm so excited that you decided to press play. Why is that? I'm speaking with Ruchira Chaudhary who is fantastic. She's someone who's got deep expertise in strategy execution, leadership development, and executive coaching and oh boy she does have experience in executive coaching in asia middle east northern africa in some of the best companies in these regions aig tcs medtronic and so many more so before we get cracking with the conversation i'm going to introduce her with a little paragraph from her fantastic new highly acclaimed book this is what she says it was 2013 and i was exiting a large and well-known organization and just the previous year i'd graduated with a mid-career mba from chicago booth school of business so armed with newfound skills and knowledge i felt i could change the world or at least the corporate world so i made some good moves including taking up high profile corporate roles that had their rewards however working within a certain large corporation also gave me immense clarity on the kind of organization i never ever want to work for again and it made me think about leaders who move forward by stepping on others and holding them back ooh i wonder which organization that i'm so curious about that i'm sure we could all think of at least one from our own experience so this little paragraph was from her fantastic book called coaching the secret code to uncommon leadership and today we are going to talk to richira about her own varied career and how to become the most extraordinary leader that you can become richira such a warm welcome to the show thank you so much for having me i'm feel very privileged and i'm really delighted to be here honor is all manager so i want to dive right in and i tend to start off these conversations with slightly heavier questions do you do you, do you feel ready are we set uh, i'll try lots of pressure <laughs> <laughs> no no pressure so richard when you look back let's see the first half of your career cuz i was looking at linkedin and you've had such amazing roles at companies in advertising software consulting banking and you know in singapore qatar india and i'm sure like a ton of global travel so when you look back on those 10 12 years and if you had to select which role do you feel exceptionally lucky to have had and how did you get hired there oh that's interesting um <clears throat> it's a tough one actually because as you rightly said i've moved around far too many times i used to blame my spouse for it all the time i would whinge and moan because you know he would move and i would trot along but um, if i really had to sort of objectively think about where i think i really became a much better version of myself where i i thought i was shining the brightest uh, was the time i spent in qatar 
right? Mm-hmm. So I've had many stints um, in Doha, the capital mm-hmm. of Qatar. And uh, mm-hmm. my first stint was when I was working for a consulting firm called Hewitt. It's it's now mm-hmm. called Aon, right? Mm-hmm. We set up their Middle East um, region. And uh, it was very interesting because uh, the very first time I'd gone there in the late 1999, I think it was 99, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the client actually said they didn't want any women on the team. And it was fascinating. It was fascinating because, you know, the the organization stood firm behind me and said, she's the best that we have. And, you know, we're not going to change our team composition because you didn't want any. And they were very nervous because the only women that you saw on the floor then were, you know, the assistants and they were all covered up in the abaya. So there was me. And sometimes they would have these group photos and everybody was covered up. So we were, so, so that was, you know, that was my introduction to Qatar. And then um, the second stint interestingly happened uh, and I did a lot of work for them uh, and other parts of the Middle East to learn some Arabic along the way. And the second, interestingly, the second stint happened when my spouse moved to Qatar of all the places uh, with Standard Chartered. And I whinged and moaned and I said, you know, it was great to be there as a consultant, but I don't want to go live there. It's a very mm. different equation. Mm. And well, of course, after sort of spending a year apart, um, I was a TCS then, mm. uh, and, you know, spending a lot of money on telecom bills, of course, mm. I did, as I always do, trot back to him. And I went and st- settled in Doha. And I worked for this amazing organization mm. called Qatar Telecom. It's now called Uridu. Mm-hmm. And I was part of the evolution. And so long-winded answer to your question, I got to Qatar again where uh, the place was evolving, right? And I think my skills in transformation, in change management, in org design uh, were truly important because they were looking to build those reservoirs of human capital. So I think I evolved with the with the country. Now, in my second stint, there were a lot more women. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we had senior women, there were single women. So I'd seen the evolution in the country. Mm-hmm. And I think I was growing as a person alongside and I think I was adding value to them. And I had a third stint, by the way. So I left them. Uh, by then, my spouse had moved to Singapore and everybody would joke and say, you made such a fuss about coming to Qatar uh, and, and now you're staying back. So I did actually, again, I stayed back. He left for Singapore and then joined him in Singapore. Six months later, um, Qatar Telecom Uridu, did, a, did one of the most, uh, uh, one of the biggest uh, acquisitions in the telecom world. Uh, while I just, I literally just moved to Singapore and they called me back to lead it for them. So there I was trotting back to Doha and then the third stage in my career where I led this large M&A integration. And I was constantly between Algeria and Tunisia and uh, Kuwait and Dubai and, you know. um, And so again, I think the ability to add that kind of value, that kind of sort of, uh, you know, um, the, the support I could provide them. And I think I truly helped build that organization. Um, and I'm very proud of the fact that I could be a part of the, the new age architect, I suppose. So stay in touch with them, stayed on some of their advisory boards for a bit. And uh, then eventually, you know, as things happen, came back to Singapore to start my journey. Yeah, well, this is so fantastic. I'm picturing you in like Northern Africa, Algeria, Tunisia, <laughs> you know, Indian woman. Yes. Um, this is such a fantastic story, which started off with we don't want any women in our team. <laughs> and, you know, as a candidate, the reaction could have been, they can get lost, right? And, and then the second thing, you know, Doha, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to. There's so much bias we have. Some of it is conscious, unconscious. Yeah. It turned out to be uh, some of the best times in your career because a lot of the stuff Absolutely. that you're quoting back to me is from that region. And I love how you said we grew up together. Uh, which means, you know, it's a true partnership. It's not like, oh, yeah, um, 
I need this job right now, so I'll take it. Yes, I'll go from Singapore. You know, it's it's difficult sometimes when you're in a uh, in a relationship. Yeah, they need me. No, it was actually equal, right? So that is so beautiful. Yeah. And um, the other thing I like that which you said was when you do great work consistently, your reputation just speaks for itself. And you don't have to ask, you don't have to sell in interviews, etc. <laughs> you know, you become a magnet and things come to you, right? I was fortunate, to be honest, to also have some fantastic leaders um, who became coaches. That's what the theme of my book is like. Yes. Uh, coaching the secret code to uncommon leadership. And they were truly uncommon leaders. So I've had some great leaders who morphed. And, and these were my clients, right? But they morphed into the most amazing mentors and coaches for me and kept bringing me back into the system. So when I was consulting with uh, Aeon, um, the individual who used to head HR became, uh, you know, uh, head of strategy. And similarly, there were a lot of people who had moved and they'd known me all these years. So they were so happy to embrace me, right? And bring me back into the system again and again. And if it wasn't for them, I mean, I don't think I would have thrived or flourish the way I did. So I think never underestimate the power of, of A, your networks and keeping them alive. And of course, the people that you work with them. That And, and there's always something to learn from everybody. Yes. Right. As, as a consultant who perhaps is the expert on org design or transformation, I think the other thing that went really well for me um, in Qatar was that I really spent the time to listen to people. I learned the language, even though I speak it, I'm very rusty now. Mm -hmm. And even if I spoke a few sentences, mm -hmm. <laughs> even if they were completely grammatically inaccurate, everybody would stop to, you know, appreciate, have a conversation. Appreciate yeah. the effort yeah. because they're like, wow, she, you know, that it's more yeah. than, it's more than the language, right? It's like she respects yeah. our culture. Yeah. Um, I was younger. I had red hair. So some people thought I was Jordanian and they would get upset when my vocabulary <laughs> would fail me, but that's okay. <laughs> oh, that's so, so funny. Yeah. That's so funny. And, and, um, um, I, I hear what you say about good leaders. When you get them, you you learn from them as much as you as much as possible. Um, I want to speak about a little bit opposite thing now. So you've talked about some you know interesting interview experiences, and we were just chatting backstage. So um, you know, um, interview projects, whatever, whatever it is, we have to start with a conversation. T talk to us about maybe some not so pleasant um, hiring conversations that you've had and what you remember from them till today? Yeah, there are many. Uh, I'll tell you about the one that uh, I remember distinctly and I've talked about it in the book as well. It's, yes. a little, uh, it's a little story in there. A lot of people write back to me and say, oh man, I resonate with, yes. it resonates with me. It was so much fun. So this was truly uh, as in a, a full-time job um, conversation because um, as you know, I straddle the corporate world and I also do a lot of advisory. So I'm, I can consult for you I've done some industry roles and I do a lot of coaching and I now teach at several business schools. So my um, career trajectory is a mishmash. Some people say it's eclectic. I mean, any, you can choose the word. But so I was consulting for this uh, large automobile organization. Uh, I was based in Singapore and uh, the Asia Pacific head who then moved to the Middle East as their um, CEO. He was rather fond of me. I'd done a lot of work for them and he constantly wanted me to help them with their strategic intervention. So I had a great partnership with them. And then at some point he said, you know what, Ruchira, we'd love for you to come work with us as in work for us full time. 
And honestly, I was a bit skeptical. I've seen that my life is always much better when I work outside an organization than inside. But he was persistent and he'd been a great mentor, great sponsor for me. So he set up this interview for me to go uh, meet the, the global head of strategy. Uh, it's a small little town in France. It's about an hour from Paris. And, uh, you know, I can speak some French, but it's at best, you know, the smatterings of French, mm -hmm. let's just say that. I write better than I speak. Anyway, so here I was from Singapore trying to take this, um, trying to take this flight. It was the end of the holiday season. There were these French, um, you know, secretaries calling me and I kept saying, can I please take Singapore Airlines? That's the airline I know. Impossible, no. <laughs> so okay, I trot, trot around, get to this little town. You know, I, I was, I live in Asia. I'm used to some creature comforts. I get there. Yes. Um, have to find this place by myself, you know, you know how it is yes. yeah, for a lot of us who are yes. uh, Asian and I haven't really, like you go to Europe for a holiday is different now. I was yes. coming for this job interview with very little support. Yes. Anyway, so I find my way as I do, I can manage. And I get to this, um, to this place um, and the gentleman was very nice. However, my French, as I explained to you earlier, is at best, you know, I can just... Mm -hmm. Basic. It's not, yeah, it's very basic. Hmm. And his English was very textbook, but he tried to make an effort, but we had no chemistry. So I don't think he liked me to begin, but, but, but that's not the story. The story goes that he wanted to ask me about, uh, you know, he, he was very clear that somebody like me could not make a go of that job in the Middle East or in India. He just said I was too posh somehow. I was too posh for that region. And I didn't quite know what posh meant because I've come from very middle-class sensibilities. Maybe because I was wearing the suit and I was well-dressed. And I really wanted to tell him, you know, uh, that's not, I'm probably looking posh because I've come to see you for an interview. Ah. I'm, not, I'm not like that, right? If I have to go see an automobile dealer, I'd be very different, but that's fine. The second bit was that he was, uh, he felt that I should come work for them there in that little town in France. And I said, yeah, sure. Sounds like a plan. And then he proceeded to ask me if I was married. And I said, I was. And he said, ah, oh, then it's never going to happen. So I needed to know why. And he said, no man would ever follow his spouse. And I found that a bit odd because, you know, I really wanted to tell him a lot of things about my life and said that I'd trotted along with my spouse everywhere he went. And he was perfectly happy to do the same. He works, still works in financial services, is a lot more mobile. But when he started saying all of that, he told me, the, gave me the example of his own wife, would quit yeah. everything to join him. That makes you realize that often we come across leaders that have such deep biases, right? Yes. And they're not even aware of these subconscious biases. And leaders like that cannot enable you, cannot help you grow, become a better version of yourself, can't give you the confidence to go forward because they've decided, even without conferring with you, what's right for you, right? And so I come across, I'm sure a lot of us too, there are these interview situations where you know that this is not going to work out. So yeah. we parted very pleasantly. I called my sponsor. I apologize. Continue to consult for them. But, you know, this is, I think, the one job interview that is, has been etched in my memory for a long, long time. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so many people will be able to relate with it. And I... Um, uh... I, I will show it in this on the screen. Page 306. Be conscious of your subconscious biases. We all have them. Um, check out the book. Uh, there's um it makes you so uncomfortable when you listen to no man will ever follow his spouse. So basically, what he's saying is, I will never follow my wife. That's what he's oh, saying. Right? Oh, I don't think that was an option in his case. <laughs> oh, it's like projecting, projecting um insecurities. And and you know, you're so polite and you're like, I wanted to say this, but I didn't. 
you know, uh, um, and there's so much like you're like later, you're like, okay, huge learning from the experience. Did you regret something? Like, could I go back and show it to him? Or you were like, this this was fine the way it was? I don't think anyone needs to eventually prove a point to anybody because the thing is, this is a job interview. This job would not have gone anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Because often, and cliched as it may be, we leave bosses and managers when we yes. leave organizations. If you the your hiring manager is someone who's so close to the idea uh, of your growth and how what how he perceives you, and it's not about being male or female, right? This is a leader, and if this leader will not enable you, will not make you become a better version of yourself, will not help you go higher, soar higher, then this is a moot point, right? This conversation yes. doesn't need to go forward. So it's best to be nice, spend yes. some time, go to a fromagerie. Enjoy your last evening in that little <laughs> village. Take your flight back to Singapore, right? And that's what I did. And I think it was okay. Yeah. I learned. I learned yeah, something. Yeah. Clearly, it. you learned because you were like, the person's made up his mind. Uh, yeah. There, there's was, no there's yeah. no point uh, talking about it any further. Um, and I, I think this is very important because a lot of us, you know, we think uh, in our naivety, you know, when, for example, we're dating someone and you're like, there's one little thing that bothers me about this person. That's okay. I'll change him after marriage. <laughs> that doesn't work. We all know that doesn't work. And same with bosses. We're like, ah, oh, that's okay. He'll change or I'll change this aspect. Uh, some things are very, very difficult to change. Not saying it's impossible. Um, so uh, I appreciate this a lot. I interviewed um, Richara, my coach, in fact, my personal mm-hmm. coach back in January. And, and she comes from the steel industry. And so many examples of Conscious in your face biases, not not even unconscious. And we're sitting in 2021, and these questions are coming up again and again. And and she helps with certain. Like, tell me, tell me what makes you ask this question? You know, coming from a place of curiosity and civilized and polite, and like you said, there's no need to prove a point. Um, so I'm I'm glad you shared that. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about one of the themes in your book, where you say there's top performers a lot of them end up getting promoted because they're top performers, but they're not necessarily top leaders. So, you know, you're, you're super chickens and superstars theory. So talk yeah. to us about how someone who's listening, either they have a top performer in their team or they themselves are top performers, yeah. but they, they do sense that when it comes to team leadership, there's something lacking. How can they work on it? It's an interesting one. In fact, as I was decoding and I, you know, building um, the, a, a compelling business case for why a leader should coach. I first started with uh, thinking about why leaders don't coach. Why is it that one has to write a book about it really, Mm. right? With all the literature and all the research available saying your manager is a single most important um, Mm. sort of uh, uh, factor in your engagement and the way your productivity as an an individual in any organization. So as I started to decode it, um, here's the thing, right? Um, coaching doesn't come naturally to a lot of us is because we've never been coached before. Mm. Uh, In organizations, in nations, we automatically promote the one that shines the brightest, right? Like the best student in the class has all the answers. Similarly, in organizations, we promote those that constantly quarter on quarter will achieve their targets and their numbers. These blue-eyed boys and girls can do no wrong they get disproportionate amount of resources typically at their disposal. Yes. Uh, you know, they sort of, they have this sense of entitlement. And now the thing is leadership needs slightly different traits 
Leadership is not about entitlement. It truly is a responsibility, right? Mahatma Gandhi will tell you that good leadership is not about how many followers you have, but how many leaders you create. These superstars or super chickens, and I'll tell you why super chickens, we'll, we'll talk about that experiment. Yes. It's fun. It's interesting, right? Because they have this inherent belief. Uh, they have a lot of passion. They have ambition. They've been so successful. They can do no wrong. Um, they do what they do even when they become leaders, which is they are fabulous solo performers, mm. but they take themselves forward. They don't take people along in the journey, mm. Mm. right? So um, interestingly, I came across it when I uh, heard about a TED talk on super chickens, right? The super chicken story is quite interesting. Um, uh, Professor William Muir, yeah, he was from the Purdue University. He's a biologist. And I think in the 90s, he did this very interesting experiment where they were trying to uh, increase the uh, egg-laying productivity of hens. So uh, they took many flocks of hens and from each of the flocks, they took the one hen or maybe two, I could be wrong, that was the most, um, you know, that was procreating the most, right? Or producing most eggs. So they took all those hens and put them in a separate uh, cage and left the other ones. And then they sort of left them alone for about six generations, I think. Life went on, eggs came on. And then when they went back to see how the, you know, these hens were doing, these chickens were doing, the ones that were deemed average were still the same. They were plump and nice, and they were actually producing more eggs than they had at the start of the experiment. But these super chickens, the ones that they had plucked out from different uh, flocks to make it the most, you know, amazing egg-laying sort of uh, cage, those were interestingly, they, it was a very sorry tale because yeah. these super chickens had pecked themselves to death Right. And you will mirror that in real life because a lot of these superstars are so focused on themselves, on their craft, uh, on their sense of entitlement that they don't know how to collaborate. They don't know teamwork. Right. And we see that play out time and again. Yes. If you look at sport, yes. you can look at examples of sport. More often than not, the best performer, the best solo player does not automatically morph into the best captain of the team. Right? Yes. And the explanation is fairly basic, as I've been saying. The traits that make for a solo performer, a superstar, uh, even some amount of narcissism and ambition and passion and drive does not corroborate with what you need to be a leader, which is a lot more empathy, uh, listening, taking people along in the journey, right? So how do we make, to go back to your question, how do you ensure that your superstars become superstar leaders? Ensure that even the superstars need to be coached and nurtured if mm -hmm. we want them to be the leaders that that make other superstars, right? Yes. So nobody, everybody needs to be nurtured. Yes. Everybody needs to be coached. And let's face it, some of them don't have it in them to be leaders. Yes, They can continue to be superstar performers. Yes. They can be solo performers, but they don't need to be leaders yes. because not everybody needs to lead. Not everybody can lead, right? And we see that play out day after day. Yes, and I love that you said at the beginning, uh, leadership is a responsibility. Um, and if it were easy, everyone would be doing it. Everyone would be a great leader. There is so much uncomfortable work in there to be told, you're a fantastic performer. Like, we can't do without you. You're the, the engine and the cash cow that this company needs. But at the end of the day, we are very happy with you working by yourself. When it comes to interpersonal, nobody likes to be told that. We all think we have great listening skills and we all think we're pretty fantastic leaders. Um, and I love that you quoted Gandhi here. And 
it's not about how many followers you have. It's about how many more leaders you make and the impact, right? It could not be more true today in the world of social media and vanity metrics. Who cares if you have 28,000 followers on LinkedIn? I'm not impressed by you. <laughs> but what I'm impressed is the impact you create, right? And that is intangible and that is beautiful. So fantastic. And and Rishara, you alluded to it, right? Because you have so many fantastic stories in your book. And, and I don't even know how long it took you to write. And we'll talk about that in a second. But in the meantime, you got all these leadership styles from sports, medicine, corporations. You've even quoted chef Gordon Ramsay. So in your research, when you were doing all of this work, which leadership story or model uh, was your favorite to write about and why? Ah, oh, it's a tough question. There's so many in there, I right? Know. Well, um, you know, the one thing I, uh, let me start by saying that when I started to write these leadership stories, at the core of every story, uh, and this is also the essence of the book, the key message that you really can't be a good leader without being a coach today, right? Mm. Especially in these turbulent times, yeah. COVID times, post-COVID times. Uh, we are going through, we, these are such um, turbulent times for all of us, right? We need leaders that take people along in the journey that constantly seek opinions of others, um, that listen. And more importantly, they ask, they don't yes. tell you what to do, right? That's yes. the core of the book, right? Yes. And so with that in mind, I, I wanted to emphasize that coaching is not what you do uh, in a conference room for uh, 30 minutes every quarter. Coaching comes in many ways, yes. right? Uh, when you shine the light on somebody, um, when you give somebody exposure, when you give them projects to do that they would otherwise not ha have the ability to do, or when you take them along to meet your boss's boss who's visiting from New York and say, hey, meet this one, and sort of give them that exposure. All of that is also coaching. So with that in mind, I said to, I wanted not to give a prescriptive way to coach somebody. I wanted to, you know, uh, based on all the interviews I had with some fantastic leaders, I wanted to tell stories about how the best have done it right. right? And so that's, you know, to answer your question, that's how all these stories came about, the chefs and the and the sportsmen and the performing arts. But the one that I think is close to my heart is um, pretty much Satya's Satela's story. Of course, I'm biased. Um, he went to the same business school and hmm. I've had the pleasure of meeting him once. And that sort of, I was very inspired by him. And I just thought that he stood, you know, if you, a lot of you might have read the book about Hit Refresh, mm -hmm. where he very lucidly talks about how he took over a broken Microsoft and completely transformed it. And he says, yes, it was a business strategy. Yes, we changed many things. It was cloud computing and artificial intelligence. But it wasn't that. At the core of everything is how we, we changed the culture. We mm -hmm. made attempts to change the culture. Mm -hmm. And uh, the C in CEO, in his words, stands for culture. Mm -hmm. But that was not all, right? To me, a good coach leader is also one who's a fantastic role model. So he role modeled it. He just didn't come in and say, okay, we're going to start afresh. He spent the first year um, along with Kathleen Hogan, his mm -hmm. uh, head of HR, who's mm -hmm. also very kindly endorsed the book. Mm -hmm. They spent uh, the entire year listening to people and understanding what they could do differently. Right. And I think he sent out a clear message that it's important to listen to those that work with you, that work for you. So you can be the kind of leader 
that takes everybody along in the journey. And after those two years, they came up with this framework. Uh, they call it a management excellence framework called Coach Model Care. So mm. every leader in the organization, and when I say leader, it doesn't mean that you have many, many people reporting to you. Any individual mm. needs to embody these three mm. um, you know, tenets of that framework, which is your coach, those that work for you, that work with you. You model the behaviors, right? So that's what he was doing. You have to be that role model. So do unto others what you should want to be, what you want to be done to you, right? So you have to be that model. And the third piece was uh, care. You have to be empathetic. You have to look after your people. You have to truly check on them, not check in, check in on them. Something we've seen in the pandemic, right? Especially with the virtual working, a lot of um, uh, managers say that my leader or my boss is constantly checking in on me, breathing down my neck. And my boundaries between personal and professional life have completely collapsed. So when I keep saying, check on your people, find out how they're doing, don't check in on them, right? And so to me, Satya sort of completely embodied that. And then there's another story, and I'll make it brief, which is not in the book. That's the story of Sheryl Sandberg, mm. who to me is a perfect role model, mm. because having never met me, uh, a few email exchanges as I did a session for them with the University of Chicago, uh, and when she talks about leaning in and supporting mm. a more equal world, she truly means it. Mm. Um, she has been the most accessible leader I could ever come across. Mm. She writes back to all my emails. She knows every sentence in my book. So she's given me an endorsement, but she's also read the book. Mm. And I don't know of how many leaders will, mm. will find the time, uh, given their crazy schedules to do that for you. Right? To help a stranger. No, that that is real character. Um uh, so Catherine Hogan and Cheryl Sandberg have both, um, you know, acclaimed, uh, you know, and, and endorsed the book, which is so good for you, Rujira, because it's so good for the world. It's not just good for you because the message has to be heard. And I'm so happy you quoted uh, Microsoft. And I have a little example. Um, mm-hmm. It's only, uh, I mean, something from five years ago. But I had a guest on this podcast uh, a few months ago, and he was going through rounds of interviews with three large companies we all know the, the names of you know those large companies in the tech sector and microsoft was one of them and what you're saying um, embody culture all of that stuff it feels to some person you know to the average person it's like what does that mean it doesn't feel tangible etc when it percolates down to all the processes so for example for this person who was on my podcast he said Microsoft got back to me immediately. They wanted to interview me. The others kept me waiting for eight months. And they said, within a week, we want you on board. And they saw he was underpaid. And they were like, whatever it takes, don't worry about it. We want to make sure you you, you get paid equally. And he got, I I don't know, 100% salary increase. Um, He said every touch point in the company. So there is a Yes, it's the right thing to do. There's also financial, like real ROI. Mm. in having that culture and, and and doing the right thing. So fantastic. Um, so many fantastic uh, stories in there. This was like barely <laughs> the tip of the iceberg. I'm telling the listener, get the book. Um, <laughs> and I, I want to now talk about adaptability because you've moved around the world. Um, <laughs> geographically speaking, countries, yeah. I know adapt, there's more to adaptability than geography, but it's not easy, right? And we talked, we heard, uh, follow the spouse, spouse follows you. Um, and 
Now, I want to talk about that for someone who's listening today and, you know, maybe we have international clients or we have traveling or we have to move to a new place. There is a culture shock. And then, Richard, we also chatted before you moved back at some point uh, to India. And the reverse culture shock is not a joke if you've been out for a decade, a decade and a half. What are your favorite tips that you are practicing um, that you can share with us today? <laughs> That's an interesting one. I think, um, in essence, you have to be, um, you have to go with an open mind, right? Uh, and you have to integrate. So whether you go to, um, in my case, it was Qatar, I, I spent a lot of time working in the Middle East. Uh, you know, I'm a very, um, I won't say I'm, I'm mellowed down with age, but I'm impatient, right? I want to get to the heart of the matter. Uh, that we all have busy lives. And I remember early days when I was consulting in the Middle East, everybody wanted to talk, every client wanted to talk about Children. I mean, I was saying, no, I was married. I didn't have, I didn't have kids for the longest time. But it was always about kids and family and how's everything and what have you eaten today from, you know, the sheep. I'm exaggerating, of course. And then we spent the first 15, 20 minutes talking about all of those things, right? Uh, the pets and the kids and all of that. And I couldn't really. It it bothered me because I wanted to move forward. And I realized, um, obviously, with some understanding and cultural acclimatization, that that's how things move. You first have to trust each other and trust comes by making those bonds, yes. by having having small talk, right? Yes. And like we do now in yes. other parts of the world, we talk about the weather. But here it was more, it's very family centric. Yes. Uh, so this didn't happen overnight, but, but you understand the cultural nuances and you also understand not just geographical, but also the organizational nuances. Now, for someone who's preaching a lot of coaching, which is uh, a good leader should ask, not tell. Remember, in many traditional organizations, regardless of the geography, uh, you always expect your boss to give you the answer. So here I'm saying you need to ask the right questions. You need to let people think for themselves. But I also know that in certain organizations, people feel very intimidated. They feel that you put them in a corner when, uh, you know, uh, on a video call or in the corridor, you stop and say, hey, so what do you think about this? Hey, John, tell me what you think about it. And you do that sometimes in front of a client. And so Southeast Asia, where I've again worked extensively in Singapore, oftentimes, you know, my American client would accost one of her team members on the corridor and say, hey, uh, Jinping, what do you think about it? And, you know, uh, there's this whole thing, you don't want to lose face. What if you say something in their mind, which is not right? They often wouldn't say anything or they'd mutter something. And she was highly unpopular. I've talked about it in the book, by the way. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. she knows that. Mm -hmm. And when I first joined her, uh, the organization, she asked me, she said, you know, I'm trying so hard yeah. to coach this team. I'm trying so hard to make them a better version. I want to raise the bar on performance. But the engagement results were so poor. And she was very upset about it. I, and I really liked her because I knew she was doing the right thing. And as I started to decode it, I realized her style of how she was coaching people was just not in line with a lot of the cultural expectations where you go to a boss, boss gives you the answer. And most of all, you don't stop people in corridors and ask them without warning, right? It's just humiliating and embarrassing for them. And so I think we spent a lot of time. I had to coach her to get to that point. But to your answer, uh, you have to embrace yes. the organization and the cultural uh, sort of climate. You have to integrate with it. The reason I learned some Arabic and the French, yes. the French was because of Algeria. 
and I was constantly making presentations and there was somebody translating my English. And even in my very basic understanding of French, I knew it wasn't going right. Okay, so the more you know about the language, the nuances, you read up a little bit. I think it makes you a much better leader. Yeah, uh, for and sure. People appre- and people appreciate you for it, right? Yeah, for sure, for and, sure. Because yeah. you mean well, right, Ruchira? And then like uh, the, the perception is accosted me in the corridor. <laughs> There's nothing positive about <laughs> about that no matter how we look at it and I love this so much because I never understood why we call it small talk like small talk (laughs) can lead to meaningful conversations it can it can lead to friendships that last a lifetime and uh, the other thing that I am hearing from you is to be interesting be interested, right? So pay, show show that, you know, it's not just like weather and, and uh, traffic. Yeah, you can t- talk about that, but also like you're saying, as, as opposed to accosting, there's a way to do it. Um, so you're like listening and w- without like, put it like you said you mean you mean well the heart is in the right place the other person yeah. feels cornered so there's so like subtle like nuances in there yeah. um yeah. and i understand that and and moving back home after a while <laughs> which is uh you know you feel you've moved on and you're in a separate place and then you feel like everybody else is maybe left behind so i'm you know i'm putting words in your mouth but how's it been and and what are some things that have helped you along the way maybe, maybe you're projecting when you go back home yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well a couple of things right firstly the first 6 months was a complete disaster a uh, full disaster because all along i think uh, i knew that this wasn't i wasn't coming back for good uh, it was meant to be a three or four stint and to be fair, I, in my mind said, oh, you know, I'm not going to be here forever. So I don't really need to uh, integrate completely. And the world had changed. That was mm-hmm. in my head. But the world actually doesn't change. It's you who goes mm-hmm. away and you change. Everybody mm-hmm. else is who they were when you left yeah. them. And of course, they've become more global, but you have very clear ideas about how you want to approach it. And, you know, so the first six months was, you know, I had a child who said, why have you brought me back? And there was, we were always moaning and binging and I would run away. I mean, basically, uh, <laughs> I would just take the next flight out and go back to Singapore or wherever else I was working because I didn't even try and make the connections here in India saying, okay, you know, I'm, it's fine. Three years, I can work outside like I always do and then be here for a few days. But I think the larger thing is you have to then appreciate the sensibilities. I was early for every meeting because that's how I was always trained to be. And everybody's characteristically 15 minutes late. Yes. When we were looking for a house, I would call realtors and say, hey, we'll be 15 minutes late. And they would just be shell shocked because I don't think in their life they ever had people telling them, you know, if it was beyond 30 minutes, somebody bothered. (laughs) Now I'm stereotyping, but it's just what is acceptable, right? Yes. In yes. Japan, you were expected to be 15 minutes early, let alone yes. be on time. It's not, it's frowned upon. So we change, but I think you have to give it time. That's yes. one. And you have to find that sweet spot between being who you are and also accepting that in order to, to get work done, in order to build those relationships, you'll have to not have such exacting standards. Yeah. And I think it's changed. Uh, you know, you eventually find your rhythm, you find your balance, you find like-minded people and life goes on. Yeah. And of course, as my husband reminds me again, I whinged and moaned like I always do about moving. But then I got the, the penguin contract to write the book, which was here in India. Right. Because uh, as I kept telling him, I, had, I wasn't doing very much between the, I was dashing off to Singapore and to Japan and the Middle East. Every time I would come here, 
I would write. I would write for a mainstream business paper. And then um, the Penguin, the Penguin publisher, publisher saw it and said, hey, can you write a book for us? So, And of course, then the pandemic happened. So, uh, you know, there was no way out. So I was sitting here, I was writing the book. And all in all, I think it's, yeah. It, it was, was meant to be. It was meant yeah. to be. Um, and uh, at the time, we don't know it. But uh, of course, you know, it's never easy in the beginning. But like you, you just, you just hold on. Yeah. And you know it's going to get better. That that patience needs um, needs maturity, particularly if you've been through changes before, right? So that's a, a that's a great lesson. Um, fab. So we're talking so much about the book, Rujira. So talk to us about like how long did it take you to put this masterpiece like on paper, and what would you recommend to someone who's contemplating writing a book i'm asking for a friend yeah of course you are happy to help your friend in any way i can <laughs> and all the other friends out there um you know i if if you since you have my book i'm going to read this out to you you'll mm. you like it it's um, in the acknowledgement section and i decided i kept saying oh you have a very big acknowledgement page so here you know the american novelist el um, doctor famously said Writing a novel is like driving a car at night. You can only see as far as your headlights. Yes. But you can make the whole trip that way. Yeah. And then uh, Anne Lamont built on it and said, you don't have to see where you're going. You don't have to see your destination or everything you pass along the way. You just have to see two or three feet ahead of you. And I think that's what writing a book is. Uh, it's very disconcerting for somebody like me who is very sort of organized, uh, not so much, uh, you know, uh, in my personal life, but my work life super organized, right? Uh, I have to be in, in the right space. I, everything needs to be filed perfectly. And then you start to write a book. So it doesn't matter because everything changes day on day. You you come up with new ideas and new concepts and, and all these thoughts meander in your head. You're disorganized suddenly. And you don't know uh, how far you'll get day after day. And it can be very demotivating because remember, um, you can create many goals for yourself, but but you don't really. But your book is not going to see the light of the day for a long, long time, right? And then you have these ups and downs. You you are you are um, plagued by self doubt, where you say, "Oh my God, what I've written does it even does does it even make sense?" Right? So you go through this whole sort of um, series of ups and downs day after day because you can't see the end in sight, right? It's yeah. a I, I call it a dark tunnel. I don't know where there's light. And of course, there's work to be done. There are clients to be done, uh, managed. There are flights to be taken before uh, the pandemic started. So life was going on along with writing a book. And it's very stressful. Uh, so I did two things, I think, which as I look back were perhaps the best decisions. I got somebody who became more like a, a thought partner, an editor, but somebody obviously who, who was as passionate about the concept as I was and who would help me uh, makes sense sometimes of my meandering thoughts. I had a, a board of advisors, if you please, my spouse, my sibling, my mentor uh, at the University of Chicago. Of course, with the spouse, you know how it is. We would often fight over something and then we wouldn't, it wouldn't go back to normal. So you need to have people other than your spouse, yes. let's say. So all of that. Um, and there were people who you would send these chapters to, they would look at it. Uh, and some of them had two fantastic friends in Singapore who would give me a lot of tough love and say, are you sure you want to write this? But you need such people, right? So firstly, make sure you have that set of advisors, 
board of advisors, I call it. You need someone who's with you all the time, who's helping you streamline your thinking. And um, and yeah, and just believe in yourself because this is a long, long journey. Eventually it all comes together. Yeah. But have bite-sized goals, have, yes. you know, celebrate each small achievement yes. and just tell yourself, I'll get there. Eventually yes. I'll get there. Yeah, chapter five done. Hey, you pop the champagne bottle. Yeah, I mean, because you gotta keep going. You gotta keep going. That, that'd be too many champagne bottles in my case because there are too many chapters. But yeah, a glass yes. of wine. Yeah, one good glass of wine would probably be a good idea. Every yeah, chapter. no, that that's really good. Um, I think that um, um, it takes a village. It it takes yeah. a village, right? I mean, of course, you know, you got to keep going. The concept is all coming from you, but um, the tough love thing, a lot of us won't even reach out, but I don't really want to know. But it's so much better. The final product is so much better for it. So um, fantastic. Um, and one uh, quick question about the career aspects, and then I'm going to change gears because this one is a juicy one. And, and maybe I'm, I'm just like looking around for gossip. <laughs> um, when you look back, um, who would you say was the worst boss you've ever had <laughs> and why? And, and what did you learn? Because so, sometimes I feel like, you know, what not to do teaches us things for life. Um, and we were like, we'll, we're never doing that no matter what. Did you have that? I, I clearly did. As you started this uh, podcast by reading out an excerpt from yes, the book, yes. where I say that having worked in a certain organization, clearly told me or taught me what I never want, the kind of places I never wanted to work in again. And as I said that to you earlier as well, cliched as it may sound, often we leave bosses and managers. We don't leave organizations. In my case, I left both. The culture was toxic mm. and my manager wasn't supportive. But um, the challenge was that I was in the leadership team um, in this mm. financial services firm in Asia Pacific. And uh, I had a lot of interaction with the Asia Pacific CEO. They brought me in, in their own words, to really change the narrative around their culture. They, need, they acknowledged that it was very toxic. They probably didn't use words like toxic, but they said we have to change and we need to bring in people like you who would really help look at um, the talent um, development piece. So... It was all the right stuff. And when they brought me in with a lot of hype and, you know, it was press releases had gone mm. out, et cetera. Mm. But interestingly, as I started to work, I, I've, I've, I've realized that many of these things don't go to the next stage because there isn't any sponsorship, right? So I would often be called uh, to Japan where we had the Asia Pacific headquarters. And uh, rather than sort of looking at a more strategic plan, it would be very operational. Um, and I hadn't signed up for this, but we ended up doing a large organization redesign exercise, which uh, is a euphemism for basically letting people go. Yes. So within a month of coming back, um, coming in, I was told that, you know, we need X number of savings and this is what you need to lead. So I've had a series of very unfortunate incidents. But in this one particular instance, I was in Japan and um, our Asia Pacific CEO um, lost his cool about something and went ballistic and started screaming at me in front of the entire board. And that really didn't go down well with me because I said to myself, I'm a very senior leader and here I am getting yelled at. And what bothered me was that my boss who was the Asia Pacific head of HR didn't do very much. And what I didn't mention to you is this is something he had was supposed to do. And it was him doing it. I was only doing it on his behalf because he couldn't make it that one time. And what really bothered me was that they didn't stand up for me. Mm. They didn't say, you know, 
and and besides nothing warrants you to go ballistic on someone right no. it just tells you a thing or two about the organization culture and how we accept it just yes. because the boss's yes. boss thinks that this is not right he has the right to start, start yell at anybody and then they said nah, don't worry about him you know how he is he grows hot and cold he's yelled at me so many times is what i was told rather than and that didn't agree with rather me. than an apology yeah on both counts but i think so that's just one sample but i think i knew that i didn't want to be in organizations like this and this also set the tone for me yes. getting into coaching because until then i was this hard nose consultant advisor i straddled between advising organizations as a consultant or working for them full time but i was doing org design transformation change management coaching was never on the sort of it was never in the mix and uh, this made me realize that there is something to be said about uh you know organizations where there is a complete vacuum of any kind of coaching or enablement where your leaders do not take you along where your leaders do not enable you where they do not build you and we need to change that narrative so one i got into coaching and second when the opportunity came to write the book uh with a lot of encouragement i said okay here's an important message it's a compelling message i think we need more leaders who can be great coaches yes who can build who can build more leaders for tomorrow exactly and like you said you know when i heard about coaching it used to you know instill all these sort of warm fuzzy <laughs> feelings there's so much more to it and um, you you very rightly said you know when you see things going on uh, some, for example somebody losing their cool in front of the entire board at another senior leader you're like okay this is permitted this is accepted right yeah. um and if that is not okay with you you got a massive clash of values and uh, the other thing you said which is um yeah i mean that hurt you uh and that just pained me listening to you uh, was silence because the silence around from your boss is a message yeah yeah because the support is yeah it's conditional when it looks good on him you know he'll support but when it's looks like uh, there's a rebel thing going on no 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 i mean we know he knows which side is bread is buttered so uh, what a lesson and and in a way silver lining coaching happened and then of course if it hadn't happened the book may not have happened and if the book may not have happened we may not have been talking today so oh there you go <laughs> so in a way i'm going to say uh, <laughs> arigato to that dude who screamed <laughs> because it just sort of had this interesting domino um uh, events that happened so this is so fantastic ruchira so we're coming close to the end now and i can't believe how fast it's been i mean our time has flown and i have this particular question i ask all my I guess when you look back you said 99 so right 97 so 20 25 years of your career is there one standout defining moment that supercharged your career and helped you to move towards your current success i think in many ways this was it right um so just to complete the story uh, mm. i was going through this very turbulent time very rocky time in my career and my pride and ego wouldn't make me quit because it was a senior role it was very lucrative i had just finished the mid career mba from the university mm. of chicago the mm. previous year and there was a lot of hype around my big role i was being suddenly being invited for all these panel discussions etc uh to give my expert comments um because and then uh, deep down i was having this really unpleasant turbulent time and i was at crossroads i didn't not quite know so at this juncture my wonderful alma mater came to my rescue and they said oh we are looking for an executive coach for our newly minted program here in singapore 
and i was like ah, i can't do coaching i'm this hard nosed consultant i have a specialization in strategy private equity but the thing was they would really wanted one of them i e someone who studied in the same business school because you know chicago booth pride itself is being yeah. very numerate economics and so they really wanted someone who could seamlessly um, marry the classroom learnings to a leader's trials and tribulations and i said what have i got to lose right i don't quite know what a coaching is but i'm certified i've have a bunch of um, psychometric tools that i'm certified in and every leader that i've consulted with in the past has always given me fantastic feedback saying that i give them clarity i take away the noise and here is my alma mater it's a safe space yes. they're telling me come on board try it and i said what have i got to lose so yes. it was it came at a time in my life where honestly it, it the timing couldn't have been better it was a good way for me to walk out um, of this organization with my head held high and uh, sort of take a little break from the corporate world go into academia and then that sort of defined the next many years i started teaching uh, the the coaching experiment clearly turned successful other business schools started inviting me to do this so i then started straddling the coaching the teaching and then of course my bread and butter which is still consulting i dip in and out of it so yes i think that's one defining moment and to be open to new experiences to accept even if it's out of your comfort zone even if it's something you haven't done before you never know where life will take you right Yeah no I I love that and I I want to quote in fact back to Sheryl Sandberg because I think it was her who said when they're offering you a ride on a rocket ship you don't ask which seat you just get the heck in and sit down and and figure it out so Correct. this is so fantastic and um uh I think it's also sometimes about rediscovering or discovering yeah. a new yeah. sense of sparkle because yeah. when we are in an organization like what you talked about we're slowly dying inside absolutely um, looks on the outside uh, you know uh, this person looks so successful wow she's so confident like they have their whole act together we don't really know what's going on so that is such a great reminder um how much can you live <laughs> like that because eventually um it's exactly like you said you know uh, going back to the chicken pecked himself to death um and the opposite of that is feeling alive again and loving what you do so i can hear it in the tone of your voice of course that um you love what you do and and what a huge difference that makes so fantastic ruchira so what's next for you <laughs> i wish i knew um i i'd say i i hope to i mean so there's some talk of another book at some point um let's just say what i didn't tell you about writing a book uh, if you think it's hard work marketing it is even harder oh, I <laughs> so i'm exhausted um so there is probably a book on the horizon at some point but more than that um i think i i really want to amplify the message of a good leader as a coach and um through the consulting and the coaching i do i i hope to keep doing that and i also on my website uh, i'm trying to build several uh, complementary tools you know the learning summaries from each chapter a lot yes. of people you know i have these i have the most amazing linkedin messages and phone calls and it really uh, it's a very beautiful feeling it's it's very yes. endearing when a 21 year old says i loved your book i i love the fact that you have learning summaries do you think you can make learning cards so i have so many people giving me suggestions all the time can you make videos for every chapter and so i thought why not right so i'm trying to put in place a whole bunch of free resources that if someone reads a book fantastic it'll only be an aid and even if you choose not to read the book at least you can get some gems 
right? So we're trying to do that. Maybe a little quiz on where you are on your on the coaching paradigm. How can you up the ante on your coaching? Uh, you know, what do you need to lift off? So all of that. Um, I have a 4C plus the four cornerstones model I talked about. We're putting that up there. And of course, all the little tips and tricks. So, yeah. No, that's fantastic. I, I also want to say that for the for the reader, I mean, you get out of it what you put into it. So, you know, you'll do the video and, you know, everything that Richard is talking about, but reading it is 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 a different depth. Um, and all these messages you get, Richard, just validates once in a while. We all need that little validation that says, hey, you know, um, on the right track, like doing the right thing. And what is that next book going to be about? Give like a little, <laughs> little teeny tiny <laughs> teaser. Yeah. Can you share? I don't I don't know yet. Okay. So I'm in conversation with Penguin and I keep telling them, I'm not sure I'll sign up with you. And they keep saying to me, oh, that's not fair. No, I'm great friends with my publishers. So I'm joking. I don't quite know, but honestly, given that I have three very, actually four uh, amazing women endorsing the book, Cheryl Sandberg, there's Kiran Majumdar Shaw. We didn't talk yes. about her. She's yes. number 66 on the most influential women yes. in the world today. Yes. There is Kathleen Hogan, the yes. you know global head of HR from Microsoft. And if you open the book, there's Mithali Raj. She's actually uh, the captain of the women's cricket yes. team in India. Yes. yes. It was very interesting how I got her. So I figured, given that I've had so many of these amazing women endorse the book, and uh, they, to be honest, were a lot easier to reach out to, and having sort of spent so much time understanding their stories and the chapters I've written on enabling more women leaders, I think I'm very inclined to do something in that space. The constructs of it, how, where, what is all a bit blurry, but I'll get to it at some point. Fantastic. Richard, so someone who's listening today and is like, wow, uh, and they want to learn more about you, what is the best way for them to do that? LinkedIn, my yes. website, it's ruchirachaudhary.com and I, you can find me, I'm everywhere. Okay. <laughs> so do yeah. Yes, you are. I will link your website and LinkedIn, uh, of course, in the show notes. Richard, I wish you a huge amount of success with the book, with your consulting and beyond. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Hey, you made it till the end. That shows that you care about your career. And that means we need to hang out a little bit more. So just a couple of things. A new podcast episode is dropped every single Monday. Wednesday, I take out one email which relates to your career and absolute amazing insights that I only share on email. So if you want to subscribe, go to the link in my show notes. That's superchargeyourself.com forward slash newsletter. And finally, did you know I hang out on LinkedIn, YouTube, and Facebook live every single Friday at 2 p.m. Central European time. So you are more than welcome to join me. Just follow the links in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, maybe share it with three of your closest friends. And if you're feeling even more generous, leave me a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts. That really, really helps the discoverability of the show. So thank you so much for listening. Take care of yourself. And until next time, bye for now. Thank you.